Well, uh, we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 14, so if you'd turn there with me. We left off last week, Jesus finishing up the Olivet Discourse, the abbreviated version from the Gospel of Mark, but it was powerful. and uh, Even though it's small, it's mighty. Uh, compared to Matthew's Olivet Discourse uh, account, it is quite, quite minimal, but uh, Mark brings it home in, in a really kind of a cool perspective. Uh, so I'm so thankful for this section. But now, after the Olivet Discourse, uh, we start to focus as Jesus uh, makes his way in the direction of the cross. And this part of Mark is where it gets into the holy uh, discussion of all what was happening here. Um, you know, um, this, this is what Jesus um, has been focused on uh, before heading to the cross. It's interesting that Jesus' last big sermon was about the end of the world, the last days. You know, um, even though people de-emphasize that in modern day churches today, Jesus emphasized that before he, he went to the cross. I think that's important to recognize. But in the last days of Jesus, um, there's a great spectrum by this time of people and the way they viewed Jesus. There were people that loved him, there were people that hated him, and the, there was a bunch of people who didn't know what to do with him. Uh, and uh, that's where Jesus is in this part of the story. Um, but it, you know, as we watch this from this moment on, it's gonna go downhill with most of the relationships. Uh, even the people that love Jesus are gonna have second thoughts even after this chapter uh, because they don't really understand what Jesus is all about. Um, people that have preconceived ideas of who Jesus is and what he came to do, they might be disillusioned when they realize he didn't do it. You know, if, if people think Jesus is just a good teacher, uh, you're gonna find yourself really disillusioned and bummed out when you realize that's not who he is. Not just a good teacher. Oh, he was a prophet. That's what the Muslims say. Nope. You'll be really bummed out when you find out, nope, he wasn't just a prophet. Um, Jesus was God in the flesh who came down to touch humanity with his humanity, God becoming flesh and dealing with the sins of humanity, uh, salvation for the world, dying on the cross, raising from the dead, ascending into heaven. Like this is such a glorious, huge thing. But most of the people in the story are gonna be disillusioned by what's happening here and even turn from Jesus and run from Jesus. Um, there's actually one group of people in this, it's a very small group, that I think is the most impressive uh, in the whole story of the crucifixion in the gospel. And it happens to be um, a small group of women. The women are the ones who impressed me as sort of getting it. You'll see what I mean here as we go through uh, this passage. Um, so we begin with Mark chapter uh, 14, verse one. It says, after two days was the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. The chief priests and the scribes, we saw them earlier you know, questioning Jesus and trying to trap him and trick him to say something dumb. And they lost that battle. Now through craft, it says here, or that's the King James way of basically saying through craftiness, um, you know, through trickery and deception and all that stuff, they're gonna try to figure out a way to off Jesus. Uh, that just shows how evil they are. They have no interest in Jesus, what he has to say or who he really is. They just wanna, they're just threatened. They just wanna do him in. 
Um, and so there's something that makes them postpone the doing in of Jesus, and that's the Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, you'll notice it says the Feast of Passover and of Unleavened Bread. Um, uh, the, the, the Feast of Passover and Unleavened by the time the Jews were in the first century, they uh, considered this one and the same, Passover and Unleavened Bread. Um, they, they, it'd be like we, we would say Christmas and Christmas Eve. It's kind of the same sort of way they thought about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and it, except it was more you know, of a long celebration. So um, Passover was about the lamb, uh, that they would uh, you know, have a dinner, uh, Seder dinner, if you would. Um, and they would set aside a lamb on the 10th day of Nisan. What do pickup trucks have to do with this? Uh, no, not Nisan, the automobile, uh, the month, the, the, the lunar calendar of the uh, Jews. Um, um, and then the, they would choose and set aside on the 10th day of Nisan. And then they would kill the lamb on the 14th day of Nisan. Um, and, and then that evening would carry on to the next day. Um, and, um, and then at, right after that, on the 15th day of Nisan, uh, would begin the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and uh, then they would eat for seven days unleavened bread from the 15th to the 21st of Nisan. So Jerusalem, uh, during the Passover, people would make their pilgrimage from all over Judea and even the Galilee region. They'd, they'd come from miles and miles away to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Um, uh, you know, perhaps some, some say even, you know, a million people would come into Jerusalem. Now, this is amazing because when you go to Jerusalem now, you think, oh, a million people, yeah, they go there. But back in the first century, Jerusalem was actually pretty small as far as size goes. Uh, and yet, you know, the, the throngs of people and, and the sacrificial lambs that would be brought, it would be quite mayhem. Um, you know, in fact, uh, during this time, there was stories that like Josephus writes about this time where there would be so many sheep brought from the outside for people to offer as a lamb for all the sacrifices that they would bring them to the Temple Mount. The priests would do their ceremonial, you know, um, uh, sacrifice of the lamb, uh, putting the hand of the priest on the head of the lamb and sort of identifying the, the sins of the people to the altar, if you would. There's all kinds of imagery there. It's really beautiful that we went over when we were in the Old Testament. Um, but so many lambs would be killed. Josephus and others write um, that there was blood that flowed like a small little creek down from the Temple Mount, down the, the Kidron Valley uh, where the little Kidron Creek was, and the, the creek would flow red with blood uh, during Passover. There were so many lambs slain. This comes into the discussion of what happens here tonight. And just the imagery of the whole scene, what Jesus is doing. Uh, for you, if you're a Bible student, you know Jesus is our Passover. Um, and that's important to understand when we talk about the Passover. Um, what, a, what an irony. Jesus, who is the Passover, is now celebrating Passover with his disciples. Um, this is a huge moment. I don't think the disciples understand the gravity of the moment. You know, it, it's like they've been practicing Passover uh, for years and years, uh, for millennia. The Jews have been practicing Passover feast. But this very evening, Passover would be fulfilled before the Jews, before the disciples, and uh, they have no idea that that's actually happening. Well, you say, well, why didn't the Jews figure it out? Well, you want some even more shocking? To this very day, the Jews don't know the Passover is all about Jesus. 
They don't know. And it's shocking. If you read about the Passover of the Old Testament, it's just like every box gets checked that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the Passover. We'll touch on some of that hopefully tonight. But um, Jerusalem would have been overcrowded, uh, traveling from all over, uh, buying and selling lambs and sheep and stuff like that. A lot of people around. Now, because of that, verse two tells us um, that they wouldn't do, they'd postpone their doing away with Jesus, verse two, but they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Was this them being prudent? Or was this Jesus fulfilling prophecy? You know, had, had Jesus been apprehended before the Passover, then the whole fulfillment wouldn't have happened at all. Um, but Jesus, the fulfillment of Passover, <coughs> that kind of has to happen to make the Old Testament come alive and be fulfillment of prophecy. So these guys may have thought they were being, you know, uh, you know sharp or crafty, <coughs> but actually they're just fulfilling prophecy. So too many people around um, and they were more worried about what people might do or think than what God actually thinks is gonna do. Um, so um, now, by the way, I wonder if these guys were a little afraid because they had to know there were some Jewish sympathizers of Jesus because Jesus had been ministering, <coughs> excuse me, for quite some time. Uh, in Galilee, and then all around the region. People were, you know, starting to celebrate Jesus as the Messiah, you know, uh, even the people that on Palm Sunday Road, those people. And so maybe these leaders thought, man, we gotta wait till the dust settles on this and wait till we can do this more in secret. Uh, so they're gonna wait before they pull the trigger uh, against Jesus. <coughs> well, it goes into verse three. It says, and being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat or dinner, there came a woman having an alabaster box of an, of an ointment, <coughs> spikenard, very precious, and she break the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that uh, had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might've been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor and they murmured against her. Now, this is where people make a mistake in uh, saying that this is exactly the same story of every other story that's like this in the gospel accounts. This is the story in three of the four gospel accounts. Uh, for you note takers, uh, Mark 14 verses three through nine is the same story of John 12 verses one through eight. Um, and it's also the same story of Matthew 26 verse six. So three of the gospels have this story. There's another story that's very much like this one, but it's not the same one. And people think it's the same one just because it sounds so much the same, but it's not. And it's in Luke chapter seven, verses 36 through 50. There's some major differences, uh, but there's also some major similarities. I'll, I'll just kind of tell you the differences just to kind of give you a heads up on this so you don't confuse this later on. But um, you know, the, um, the Mark account story happens uh, here, you know, uh, in Simon the leper's house. Um, if you read the Luke account, um, it's in Simon the Pharisee's house, different, different guy, different um, place. Um, in fact, these happened in very different places. One of the stories happened more up in the Galilee region. This story happened just outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. Um, so we know who this is in this story, uh, although we, it doesn't tell us who the woman is. Um, this is Mary of Bethany in Mark's account. 
Um, we learned that in John 12, who this was, uh, verses one through eight. So this is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and this is the Mary. Uh, she's not necessarily named here, but she is in Luke 12, one through eight. And we saw that um, uh, when we were in Matthew's gospel. Remember Mary of Bethany? Uh, what was she always seen doing? Always at the feet of Jesus. That's a dead giveaway that you're, you're, um, you're seeing Mary of Bethany. Um, however, the Luke uh, account, some people ascribe to Mary Magdalene. Um, but I'm not sure we can say that for sure. And in fact, um, I'm gonna just call her the unknown woman that's talked about. And she does a very similar act of worship with Jesus. Um, but, uh, you know, the, one of the things people get tied up and tangled up on this, even in this account, is um, the chronological order of when things actually happened and when they didn't happen. And the mistake is made largely because the way we love to think linearly, our, our Western minds, our American minds, we think linearly. And if it's not on a timeline, it doesn't make sense to us. One of the things we must remember, neither Matthew nor Mark are attempting to give a chronological order of the gospel account in, in any precision whatsoever. Um, in fact, what you'll find Jews doing more than chronological linear order is they will bring concepts and clump them together. That's a different way of thinking. It's the way the Jewish mind thinks, by the way. Um, I've done whole studies on this, um, the kind of the way the Jewish mind works and it's, it's, um, it's amazing. And it's served the Jewish people very well uh, in, in all kinds of uh, academic disciplines and what have you. But, um, but it doesn't, we, don't, we often can't fathom it. But um, more than giving it a chronological order, you know, it seems their obvious purpose is to place this beautiful incident next to the dark deeds of Judas Iscariot. Um, that is the plot to betray Jesus. They're portraying the vivid contrast. Um, most scholars agree that it's the conflict of light and darkness. Um, you know, um, and that's why Mark and Matthew bring this sort of event together. Um, and it's in the same chapter, we're gonna be talking about Judas Iscariot and his betrayal. Um, you know, both friend and foe are moving toward the cross, but in different modes, if you would. Um, and, um, you know, Mary of Bethany is coming in the way of light and love and anticipation. She's one of the few people that knows what's going on in the story. Uh, this, you know, Mary of Bethany. Um, but Judas is more inspired by foul, dark, evil motivations. And Judas himself is gonna be uh, in big trouble. You'll, we'll see that in the chapter. But, um, you know, the woman, um, the woman in the story here that seems to know what's going on um, is, uh, is the, this, this woman, Mary. I'll show you what I mean. So, so, so far we see this woman uh, worshiping Jesus with this uh, very costly spike nerd. Uh, spike nerd in an alabaster box was not unusual. Um, it was sort of used as a dowry for marriage. Um, it was a way to sort of invest. Instead of investing in a gold bar, uh, or you know, money, you'd invest in this costly spike nerd from India. And you would basically um, put it in a box that would preserve it. People would bury it in the ground. People would put it in a, a bank or you know, a safety deposit box. It was so valuable. It was worth about a, a year's salary. And um, there's so much about this. And we've talked about this in previous, even in our account there in Matthew's gospel, um, that the 300 pence, you know, that could have been given to the poor, as one of the disciples say here, um, uh, really was this woman's marriage dowry, which it really does tell us 
she was giving her whole life, everything she had and even her you know, future in marriage, she, she basically was giving that over to Christ and giving her life as a, a full-on servant of Christ. It was quite a display of worship and commitment and uh, um, preparation for his death. What do you mean preparation for his death? Well, that's what Jesus says that she's doing. And, um, and we'll see how, um, how this is uh, so beautifully played out. Now, uh, I want you to note though, uh, where it says there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? I want you to mark that word waste because it's coming up in a a bit. Uh, Does anybody remember the specific disciple who actually said this? Yeah, it was Judas. And we know that from John 12's account of this same story. Um, And he was the one, Judas was the one who was criticizing her uh, and calling this a waste. And I want you to note that word. Well, um, and, and, then, and then, you know, his logic, uh, if you could call it that, was there's, there's poor people. We could have given this money to the poor rather than wasted it on, you know, this worshiping of Jesus. Um, notice what Jesus says here, the red letters, verse six. It says, and Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Um, for you have, um, you have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good, but me you have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Man, Jesus goes on record saying, this is a big deal, what she has done. Um, Now, um, this is interesting because Mary comes, um, it's a different expression of worship. And we we talked about this last week. Do you recall about, there's different forms of worship. There's, you know, worship in song, there's worship in giving. That's kind of what she's doing. She's worshiping at his feet, but she's giving something that costs her greatly. And, you know, this reminds me of something, you know, where, um, you know, we, we are supposed to um, think about what, what does worship actually cost us? Um, I think sometimes we're so casual and chilled out. We're like, ah, oh, come to church, worship the Lord with song. But we're not gonna tire ourselves out by lifting our hands or doing anything too expressive because we're so chill, we're so cool. Um, but I, I do wonder, um, when does worship cost you anything? And that's something to ask yourself. Do you ever uh, just give to the Lord uh, your time, your money, your energy, your effort uh, with a wholehearted, you know, full-hearted uh, expression of love and kindness? You know, I, I fear that there's a lot of uh, pe- people that don't have any real emotion uh, that, um, of love that is expressed. I know it's not all about emotion. And some of you are like, Brett, it's about logical. We know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, beep, and uh, everything's great. Like, I, I understand that, but you know, the love of Christ has been given to you and he expressed it in the most powerful of ways. And here's this woman expressing in a passionate way her worship of Jesus. And, and who's the one criticizing that? Judas Iscariot, do you really wanna be in his camp? Do you really wanna be like him? And Jesus says, leave her alone. Um, and he also knows Jesus from John's account that Judas is actually a thief and he doesn't care about the poor. Um, yeah, we know all that stuff. But, you know, I wanna remind you, you know, that we all have opportunity to just give our heart worship to the Lord, whether it's just you and the Lord one-on-one in your privacy of your house 
or singing worship songs as you're driving down the road, um, or even at church. You know, Sunday night worship on Sunday evenings here at Athe is uh, one of those great opportunities we have. It's just a vertical service, all worship of Jesus. We're not talking about even the Bible. We do that on Wednesday night. Our Wednesday night's a Bible study. Sunday night's a chance just to say, let's just give our love and affection and attention to the Lord and do it expressively. Um, that's something I, I think we have to be careful. I hope we're not, you know, God's chosen frozen here at Athey Creek. Um, that can happen. And if you have a marriage that's like that, where there's no expression of love ever, um, then that's not really a great marriage at all. And yet we're the bride of Christ. Um, are you um, uh, or one who gives your love and your affection to Christ? That's something, you know, Mary did this for love for him. But also Jesus says in, in verse eight, to anoint my body to the burying, to anoint for his burial. How did she know that Jesus was about to be killed and buried? Anybody wanna guess? Yeah, Jesus told them many times over. I, I just marvel at this because the disciples the whole time, it's just like, I feel bad for them because I think I would have been right there with those guys. Uh, meanwhile, Mary's like, you guys, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. And, uh, I'm gonna do this because, hello. And all the disciples are like, oh, which one of us is the greatest? Uh, you know, and like, like it's, it's like they were just totally clueless about what was really going on. And even after Jesus died, they forgot that he said that. Um, and then it was only after the resurrection that they're like, oh yeah, he said all of this stuff. Um, that's why it's amazing to me that these ladies are the ones who seem to know more what was going on. Um, but, um, you know, uh, she was worshiping him knowing that he was about to die on the cross and, um, and she was ready for that. Um, you know, by the way, uh, that, that's one of the main things we should be doing because of the death of Jesus. Um, uh, we should be worshiping Jesus uh, for what he's done for us. I love that last song Peter sang tonight uh, with us because it's such a Christ cross-centered uh, song. First Corinthians 2, 2, Paul said, for I have determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Um, uh, that's uh, that's a, a, way, a reason why we should be focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. So Mary, she's the one who um, uh, is there at the feet of Jesus doing this amazing thing. Now, um, verse 10 goes on. Uh, and Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went unto the chief priest to betray him, to answer them, uh, unto them, to betray him. Uh, and verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he um, sought how he might conveniently um, betray him. Question, how much money did he betray Jesus for? Anybody remember? 30 pieces of silver, we know that from another gospel. Um, but it was also, I need to remind us that this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Remember, I've always said there's like, uh, there's more than 300 direct prophecies about Jesus in his first coming. There's even more about his second coming. But 300 direct prophecies, one of those is that he'd be sold, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah, you can jot this down in your notes if you wish. Zechariah 11, verses 12 through 13 says, so they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver and the Lord said to me, cast it to the potter, a goodly price, um, and I was priced. And so we know that that's exactly what happened. 30 pieces of silver, Judas later felt uh, remorse. And so he, he uh, threw back the, the, um, the, the price uh, to the, you know, the chief priests, and then they went out and bought his potter field, checking two boxes of the uh, prophecies concerning Jesus about the 30 pieces of silver. 
Well, um, I love, by the way, all these things so perfectly fulfill scripture. Uh, it's great. It's good to notice those things. Um, well, verse 12, and the first day of the unleavened bread, um, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, uh, where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? Um, now, um, by the way, uh, you know, uh, Jesus and the disciples preparing for the Passover, this would have been something normal. Um, like, I think we don't even fathom how it just is, oh, it's time for Passover, we gotta get our thing on going. And there's a lot of work. If, you're, if you've ever done a Seder dinner, there's a lot of work that goes into them. We've done Seder dinners here at Athey when, when we were a little smaller. Um, last time we did one, I think we only had 500 people uh, at our Seder dinner. Uh, but now it'd be hard to do one for 10,000 people. Um, but if you've ever been a part of one, it takes a lot of work and preparation. And so the disciples are like, hey, we need to figure this out. So verse uh, 13, so he sends forth two of his disciples and said unto them, go ye into the city and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water, follow him. Now I know what some of you are thinking, uh, they're gonna find a man with a pitcher of water. Like, uh, is that gonna really make him stand out in a crowd? Well, the answer is yes. Um, who would normally be seen carrying around a pitcher of water? Women, because women did all the work. The way it should be. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. No, no. By, by the way, um, I actually had to teach on this topic uh, in Africa. Um, I was in Africa and the African pastors were all asking me questions about marriage and they, they, they had problems because a lot of them, before they became Christians, they had like eight or nine wives and then they became Christians and then they wanted to be pastors. But it says that the pastor in first Timothy says he's put to be the husband of one wife. Uh, it's funny how when I look at that, I don't even think about like, oh, let's see, one wife check. Okay, that's good. Um, but in Africa, like they literally had a problem with that. And but it, it, there was actually more of a problem because in Burkina Faso, they, the, I forget what they called it. I think the guy was called the Zakzoba, uh, which was the king of the yard. And he would have like his chair and everything. And it was a little yard with these little huts in kind of a circle with a sort of a wall around it. And each hut had one of his wives. And he would just sit around and, and the wives would serve and do all this hard work. And, and uh, one of the things that... Um, I kind of had to share with the brothers there because they were, fortunately they were asking me. It was, it'd be a hard subject to sort of talk to such a culture that's sort of embedded in this kind of mindset. But uh, being the king of the yard, um, Jesus talked about being, if you want to be great, you got to become a servant. And I was having to kind of challenge the men to get off their rear ends and not just make all the wives do all the hard work, you know. Um, but the, the guys were like, we will defend if lions come and we will fight the warriors if they come. Uh, let the women cook. You know, that was kind of the thing. And there is a certain truth to that. The ladies were like, yeah, you guys fight the lions, we'll cook the stew. That's great. Um, but, um, but at the same time, um, one thing I, I love about the Bible is you always see uh, the Lord putting women in a great place of honor. And, uh, and men are supposed to work hard. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, but this, this would have been a woman's job to see a man carrying around a pitcher. Um, I remember speaking of Burkina Faso, I, I saw these women pounding this uh, millet in, in one of those big wooden stumps that kind of had a hole in it. And they were just kind of there pounding away and, and I wanted to give it a whirl. Uh, and so I walked up and asked this lady if I could give it a try, you know, and I was just out there in the bush, you know, just pounding away. And all the men gathered around and started laughing and I wasn't sure why they were laughing. The reason they were laughing is I was doing a woman's work. They're like, that, that American guy's a woman. Like, um, um, 
So I, I kind of you know gave my little uh, pull back and and handed it to the ladies. But um, but yeah, it's a totally different world over there. Same kind of idea here with with a man carrying a pot. That okay, that would have stood out in a crowd. So you're supposed to follow the guy that's doing something different, uh, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, you know, um, this would have been an odd thing to see. Uh, so all that to say, verse 14, and he says, wheresoever you shall go, uh, go in, say to the good men of the house, the master saith, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there, make ready for us. Um, many scholars believe they know whose house this is. And it's by doing a little forensic work in all the gospel accounts, we know this is probably John Mark's father and mother's house, the author of the gospel of Mark. And, and, and little, you understand, John Mark, when this was happening, he was just a little boy. Um, remember, John Mark's writing the, the account of what Peter saw in the gospel. Um, but John Mark was just a little boy when all this was going down. Um, he'll come into the story probably uh, in a little bit. I'll show you that in a second, in a few weeks maybe. Um, uh, but but uh, all that to say, because of that, there's a great chance this is, um, you know, John Mark's parents' house. And Jesus just uh, says, you know, may go up there and assume they already are getting ready, things ready. Um, now, I love this. Um, the host of this house, whoever it was, um, was willing to have 13 men, Jesus and the 12 disciples show up at a moment's notice and have Passover dinner, which takes great preparation and great work. And uh, again, I have to say, one of the things you see in the early church is this idea of hospitality. Um, one of the great movements of the early church wasn't just the great gathering. There was a great gathering. There in Acts chapter two, it says they, they gathered you know, in the temple. Now it's where 3000 people were saved in one setting. So that was the big mega church of the day. Um, but they also continued steadfastly from house to house. There were people that opened up their houses for smaller groups and were hospitable and they broke bread and they prayed and had fellowship together and they, they discussed the apostles' doctrine, which was the teaching of the word. And the Lord blessed those homes and those houses. And I have to say, I've, I've seen that in my own growing up years as my parents were, they were those people that had, you know, groups over to our house uh, for Bible study, to share the good news with people, uh, unsaved people that needed help. My parents would open the doors, you know, of our house. And I grew up with that. Um, and that's such a, a great thing. And then, and then uh, here at Athey, we're watching that. You know, um, one of the things that kind of came out of the whole COVID thing that's been shockingly a blessing is our watch parties. Uh, we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of watch parties all over the world, people opening their homes and letting people, you know, step in, track in on their carpet or uh, rip, you know, pictures off the wall or whatever they do uh, to their houses. Um, I remember my parents, you know, that after a, a Wednesday night Bible study at my house, there'd be like uh, stains and things broken. And my parents didn't even think twice about it. You know, they just kind of, that's part of the deal, you know, part of giving this to the Lord. And um, we have people that do that. And, and it's so cool to see how the Lord's using that. I think we're living in a time where we do need that more intimate fellowship in the smaller groups and how, how rich that really can be. If you're lacking that, um, maybe you should think about, uh, is it time to open your house to do? I mean, there's so many things you could do. You could do a watch party for the Prophecy Updates. I know a lot of people do that. Uh, or you could do a home fellowship where you just get together on every other Sunday night when we're not doing Sunday night worship. 
You could just have people over your house and worship and, and have food and do what the early church did. Acts 2.42, breaking of bread, fellowship, prayer, uh, and, and um, the apostles' doctrine. If you just give those four things, man, you're, you're, a, home, you're a home fellowship, according to Acts 2.42. Um, but Brett, my, my carpet will get tracked in. You can replace your carpet. Well, we don't have enough money to do that. Um, the Lord will provide all of your needs according to his riches in, in glory. Like it's, it's amazing how the Lord just kind of takes care of everything. So, you know, whose house was this? Most scholars think it was John Mark's parents. Um, but after the resurrection in the book of Acts, this same house uh, would be the center of a lot of the church activity, um, which is kind of interesting. So they opened up their house for Jesus to uh, take over, the, uh, take part of the Passover. Now, again, this is the gravity. Uh, jot down 1 Corinthians 5, 7. This is an important verse when it comes to this idea of the Passover. Um, it says, purge out therefore the old leaven that you may uh, be a new lump as you are unleavened. And then it says, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Some of you might say, bro, why don't we keep the Passover? I mean, we read it here. They're all getting up in a busy thing here with their Passover dinner and, and all that. Um, we can, if, if you wanna do a Passover meal, you, you can. And it's fun to talk about the picture of Jesus that the Jews had in the Old Testament. But it's not something you're required to do. And here's why. Jesus is our Passover. He's the fulfillment of the Passover. Now there's some Messianic, as they're called churches, which Messianic often can mean any number of things. I've, I know Messianic churches that are really wonderful. And I know Messianic churches that are really crazy. Um, so watch out when you hear the messianic thing. It can go either way on that one. Um, but if, if, for example, here's one of the more crazy. If, if a messianic church is telling you, and messianic meaning they believe Jesus is the Messiah and they're Jews worshiping Jesus as the Messiah, you might say Christians, part of the church. Um, one of the things I'm uncomfortable is the messianics tend to wanna keep themselves separate uh, in a separate delineation uh, from the actual greater church which I think is a mistake. Jesus um, would tell us, and, and Paul in Ephesians 2, he made of two, the Jews and Gentiles, one new man, uh, Ephesians 2, and that's the church of Jesus Christ. Um, but one of the things you'll hear from the little more uh, uh, radical messianics is you have to keep the Seder dinner and Passover dinner. You have to go back to some of these you know, festivals, feasts, and what have you. And can I just remind you, Colossians 2 says, let no man judge you concerning new moons, feasts, or festivals, which are a shadow of Christ, but now Christ is already here. So um, the point is when Jesus came, he fulfilled all those Old Testament images and pictures pointing to Christ. And now um, the Passover feast, Jesus checks that box. However, if you wanna celebrate something, Jesus gives us a new assignment right here. Let's see what that is. Um, and we'll see how Christ our Passover is fulfilled perfectly. It goes on in verse 16, and his disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them, the guy with the pot, um, and, uh, and they made ready the Passover. And in the evening he cometh with the 12. And as they sat, they did eat. Jesus said, verily I say unto you, one of you which eateth with me shall betray me. Now, have you ever been to the dinner where everything's just going along great and then somebody says something that kind of ruins the whole evening? <laughs> Jesus is that guy. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, you're just kind of, oh, happy Passover. And you realize, oh, something's wrong here. Jesus said, one of, what? One of, one of us is gonna betray? Now you gotta understand, these guys have been traveling together for three years now uh, with Jesus serving. 
Um, probably the most impressive of them all in some ways would have been Judas Iscariot. Um, that's why they gave him the responsibility to be the treasurer carrying the bag because he was impressive. Um, but now he's saying, one of you are gonna betray me. And man, the, the fun dinner now is kind of over because uh, check it out. And verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and to say unto him one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? Um, can I just say this, this exposes our own human nature. Um, at least they're honest to know that maybe that they had that potential. They would say, am I the one that's gonna betray you? See, I hope that, that you and I are careful to not think, I would never do that because remember, Peter is gonna make that mistake. You know, we saw that on Sunday. But, um, but you know, we're all capable of sin and we're all capable of horrible things. One of the reasons I think we fail is because we're not aware of how capable we are of failing. One of the things I learned in my jail ministry when I did that for years, um, I was, uh, I'd go down to Jackson County Jail uh, in Medford uh, every other Sunday night and um, teach a Bible study, lead some worship in the jail there. Um, but I remember, you know, being a Christian kid, growing up in a fairly, uh, you know, protected environment, I, I always picture, well, the guys in jail, they're all these horrible, evil guys, you know, with teardrops tattooed. Well, that's actually state pen. But the Jackson County Jail, uh, it's actually shocking um, because guess what? I learned over the years, they're just like doing a Wednesday night Bible study here. In fact, my crowd there wasn't that much different than what I see right here. I did a, 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 Tad went with me this one time. We did a time where I went into the Coffee Creek Women's Prison and did a couple services. I did a first service and a second service. The first service was the, you know, the, um, what do you call it? It's not the super uh, secure division, like it's the minimal security section. Uh, and then I did the second service, which was the maximum security section of people. Um, and uh, the first service was, Seriously, like Athey Creek ladies could have been there. In fact, one Athey Creek, hey, I go to church when I'm not in here. You know, she went and get, <laughs> told me in. Um, and uh, she just a really nice lady. Um, and, and it was actually really a shock, these, these poor ladies, you know, that had made one dumb mistake. One dumb mistake. Same with the Jackson County Jail. Um, with the men that were there. I remember just, it was like, what did you do? And, and you hear the story like, man, you know, and you can almost picture yourself making a dumb decision at the wrong moment of, of the time and get caught. Um, and you realize, you know, we're all just really sinners. Now, I do have to admit, the second service at Coffee Creek was a little heavier, uh, the more maximum security, and uh, I was uh, fearful for my life. Uh, but other than that, it was great. Uh, <laughs> it's a kind of a funny story about that, but I won't go into all that. But anyway, um, you know, we think of the jail ministry, the worst of the worst, but actually there's not much difference between you and me and the people in the jails uh, right now because uh, you know, we're just one bad decision away. And, and you kind of get the sense the disciples understand, is it I, am I the one? Um, well, uh, I wonder if Judas is the only one that was sitting around like, <laughs> like, like I wonder what he was doing to sort of compensate for the possibility of being found out. I'm just gonna eat my food like normal. I'm not gonna give, I'm not gonna ask, is it I, Lord? I'm just gonna, in fact, I think I'm gonna take my bread and dip it casually, just kind of reach out and dip my bread in the sop in the middle of the table. Um, let's read on. <laughs> they all asked one by one, is it I, is it I? Verse 20, and he answered and said to them, it is the one of the 12 that dippeth with me in the dish. The son of man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe, 
to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. That's a pretty strong word, that he'd never been born. When Jesus says that a guy would be good if he had never been born, do you think Judas is gonna go to heaven? No, he's not, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, in John 17, 12, um, he's called the son of perdition. Um, and that, that's a word that means total destruction, waste, doomed. In fact, um, you know, um, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because there's, there's a, this is where we tie in something unique. So Judas is the one who's called son of perdition in John you know, 17, 12. <clears throat> but the word perdition in the Greek word, well, it's a Greek word. I'll show you what the Greek word is. Um, it's um, apoleia. Um, the definition means destroying, perdition, utter destruction, um, but also the word waste. Do you remember where we underlined the word? Who was saying someone was a waste? It was Judas who was saying Mary of Bethany was a waste. And if you look up that word that's up there in verse four, why was this waste of the ointment made? The word is apoleia. The same word that Jesus in John 17, 12 would call Judas, Judas, you're a waste. That's kind of brutal. When you think about this, Judas is the one who, now, now when Jesus calls somebody a waste, he's not like, you're a waste. He wasn't like, he wasn't doing that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> that's my impression, I'm sorry, it's not me. Um, uh, you know, like snotty, snarky. Jesus was being truthful. What a waste of a human being. But he wasn't saying it insultingly, he was saying it truthfully. Judas wasted his life, wasted his, uh, what he had going for him, and he's called the son of waste, the son of perdition. Um, and so really, uh, when you put all the accounts together, the John 17, uh, the Mark chapter 14, you realize that Judas called her a waste, and Jesus said, no, actually, Judas, you're the waste. Uh, and, and because of that delineation, we know that he's not gonna go to heaven. Um, and by the way, uh, I told you about the prophecies of the Bible being fulfilled, the 30 um, pieces of silver, but did you know this whole betrayal by Judas is like several boxes checked? Not only the amount of money that was paid to betray Jesus, but even this, uh, this kind of betrayal. Um, in fact, uh, do you wanna check one of them out? It's, it's Psalm uh, chapter 41. Would you keep your finger here and go back to Psalm 40, 41 with me? Psalm 41. There's this interesting little psalm um, that has what the Bible prophecy people call a dual fulfillment, which the Bible's full of those. And often it has to do with the Old Testament picture that would be fulfilled in a New Testament practical way. Um, a picture that actually happened. Um, so for example, let me give you a huge dual fulfillment of prophecy, um, the giant. Uh, when you read the book of Daniel, you read about Antiochus Epiphanes, the historical guy around 170 BC that came and caused all kinds of trouble and caused an abomination of desolation in the temple in Jerusalem. He's a first fulfillment prophecy, but he's foretelling something else. What is he shooting the future for? Antichrist. And so we know Antiochus Epiphanes was a story that did happen in the Old Testament, but Daniel gives the account and then his gaze goes beyond Antiochus and it goes on to the future coming world leader called Antichrist. That's like a dual fulfillment in prophecy. Well, there's big ones and small ones. This is a little smaller one, but I find it interesting and it, and it relates to what we're talking about. It's Psalm 41, verse nine. It says, um, the, the psalmist David says, 
Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. But thou, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may requite them. Um, this is the psalmist. Um, and he's talking about something that actually happened in his life. Um, but he's also messianically talking futuristically about Jesus who would be betrayed by a friend. What story is he talking about? Uh, well, well, you know, prophetically he's talking about Judas betraying Jesus, the son of David, <coughs> excuse me. But locally he's talking about, do you guys remember the story of Ahithophel? Ahithophel who? Um, Ahithophel, uh, this was David's seemingly trusted advisor. <coughs> For many years, Ahithophel was an advisor to King David. But, um, but eventually, remember when Absalom, David's son, rebelled against David and caused kind of a coup? Uh, well, Ahithophel went to the other side and started counseling Absalom. Uh, it broke David's heart that Ahithophel would do that. Well, um, long story short, David got a double agent, a guy named Hushai, and David sent Hushai to go and give Absalom counsel, but Hushai was really David's secret operative. Um, who needs James Bond when you got the Bible? Um, so, so Hushai's in there, Ahithophel, and Absalom, what should I do? And, and so um, the Ahithophel says, listen, David's at his weakest point right now. His mighty men aren't even around. This is the time. Get your army together and attack David right now, which as it turns out, he was right about that. David was in a very vulnerable situation. Had Absalom done that, well, why didn't he? Well, Absalom said, okay, Ahithophel, great, but you used to counsel my dad. And uh, um, let's go ask Hushai for advice. And Hushai said, oh, whatever you do, man, don't attack David right now. He's got all his mighty men together. They're armed to the teeth and they will crush you, Absalom, which wasn't true. That was David's man lying to Absalom. And Absalom listened, listened to Hushai. Well, Ahithophel was so bummed out that, that Absalom didn't listen. Um, why, did, why did Ahithophel want Absalom to listen? It seems that Ahithophel wanted to betray David more than just going to Absalom's side, but even seeing David's destruction. Why in the world would Ahithophel uh, want David to be destroyed? Well, you don't really know until you read the full story. Does anybody remember Ahithophel was related to somebody. Does anybody remember? Bathsheba, that's correct. Uh, and remember what happened with Bathsheba? David committed adultery, murdered her husband, did the whole thing, and it was a big, big deal. And so this is her grandfather. Her grandfather is saying, yeah, I'm gonna get you, David. And he does, he tries to get him. But when Absalom, guess what Ahithophel does when Absalom doesn't uh, listen to his counsel? Well, he goes and puts his house in order, gets everything in order, and then hangs himself. Um, this is a uh, almost point for point picture of what happened with Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus and went out eventually in failure and hung himself. Same story. Uh, and so this is, mo most believe, believe this is both a prof prophetic word about, you know, a story about Ahithophel, but it's also a prophetic word about the Messiah, Jesus being betrayed by Judas. Um, we could do this all night, by the way, talking about, we could do this the rest of our lives, comparing Old Testament stories um, with New Testament tr truths and outcomes. So um, we'll see more of these things linked together as we continue. Back to uh, Mark chapter 14. Um, so they're all, you know, wondering who did it. Well, it's the one who's dipping in the dish. Um, and then he says, uh, you know, this woe to the, the, the one who's 
you know, it would have been better for him never to have been born. And what a sad story that is of Judas. Uh, Well, verse 22. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and break it and gave it to them saying, take, eat, this is my body. Now, this is the beginning of him instituting the the Last Supper. And the bread here is uh, matzah bread. by the first century, they would use this pretty specific matzo bread. But that's just, those are just crackers. Well, you'll notice they're different than like your saltine crackers. The main difference between this and a saltine is there's no salt. Um, uh, when they would make this matzah, uh, it'd be like a big saltine with no, no salt. And, and by the way, uh, the brown marks and the holes, they're all Jewish. Uh, it's, it's all related to Jewish symbology, but it's interesting when you look at it as a picture of Jesus and his body. Um, there's so many tie-ins to this. As he was pierced, the holes in the matzo bread, which was part of the baking process, putting these holes in them, uh, would be uh, speaking of how he was pierced for us. The burn or the, the little brown marks, speaking of judgment and the wrath that was put upon the sun in our place. Um, and this idea of uh, this uh, picture of the Passover, can I just, uh, I, I, talking about pictures and, and prophetic things, I want you to ter- take another look with me. Let's go back. We've got lots of time. Uh, I'm almost done with this chapter. Uh, <laughs> uh, but keep your finger here and go back with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. I, I want to review why the Passover was instituted at all. And, um, and it's important for us to do this uh, because this is a big deal, what Jesus is instituting. Um, while you're turning to Exodus 12, um, note with me, the word Passover is used 76 times in the Bible. 48 times it's talked about in the Old Testament, but 28 times it's talked about in the New Testament. Um, all those 28, except for two. So 26 of them are mentioned in the Gospels. And then outside of the Gospels, the Passover is mentioned only twice. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, where it said, Christ is our Passover, the one I shared earlier. And Hebrews eleven twenty eight that talks about, um, you know, uh, through the faith, he kept the Passover, the sprinkle of blood, um, and let the firstborn would not be touched. Uh, it's a uh, reminder as the Hebrews in, in the hall of faith, Hebrews 11 talks about the Passover. But, um, but I wanna show you the connection of the original Passover and Jesus. It's so, it's so beautiful, check it out. Verse one of chapter 12, and it says, and the Lord spake to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, this month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Okay, so there's a new year instituted now. This wasn't the new year before this, but now uh, it'll be the new year um, uh, as it turns out. So uh, speaking of that month, um, so this is the month of Nisan. Just remember Datsun if you're old here. Um, But that's the first month of now. so, So now Nisan is the January for the Jews, starting in Exodus 12. Verse three, speak unto all the congregation of Israel saying in the 10th day of the month, they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep and, or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. 
And they shall take the blood and strike it on the two side posts on the upper doorposts of the houses where they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast it with fire, his head with his legs and the pertinence thereof, um, or the inside parts. Verse 10, and ye shall let nothing of it remain until morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste if the Lord's, it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Question, if we were all Egyptians tonight, how many of you, raise your hand, are firstborn in your family? Raise your hand. Wow, you'd all be dead. Like that'd be horrible. Can you imagine? That's like half the group in here. That's just half our congregation. This is, you know, you think, oh, the firstborn, tough for them. Can you imagine if you're the firstborn in Egypt? I'd be out there with like an airless sprayer, making sure my door was covered in the lamb's blood because I didn't want to miss a spot. You know what I mean? But, um, but um, let, me, let me show you some stuff here uh, about this. Uh, first, there's four main um, things. I, I could, I, we could go deep into this. I'm just gonna give you four main things, but let's talk about Jesus, our Passover and how it relates to this Exodus institution of the Passover. The first thing I want you to see is, number one, the selection of the lamb. Um, it, it tells us there that um, they were supposed to select it on the 10th day of Nisan. Um, now, this is interesting. If you follow the datings of, of Jesus and the Holy Week and before he went to the cross, all of this lines up. They were selecting Jesus on the 10th day of Nisan. Um, he rode into Jerusalem earlier but then his time in Jerusalem was whether they're gonna select him or reject him. Um, and he would start to be put on trial by, you know, by this time. So um, the lamb being inspected, uh, that's part of the deal. They would select the lamb and it was, it was supposed to be a, a lamb you know, that was uh, without spot or without blemishes. Um, Second Corinthians 5.17, um, you know, one of the things I love about the new beginning of the, of the new year is the new year is a new day. Um, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. So that's the first thing selected at the beginning of a new year. Um, how many lambs? Uh, how big of a lamb? Well, that depended on how big your house was, how many people you had, and how many, if, did you have like the guy that ate three times more than everybody else? You're supposed to measure that out. And if, if you don't have a big enough crew for one lamb, you share with the neighbors um, that lamb. So um, what is it supposed to be? A spotless lamb, it says here, um, spotless. Uh, check out 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Um, so this selection would be on the 10th day, killed on the 14th day, uh, the same day Jesus would be crucified, by the way. So Jesus would just days before ride in on a donkey and soon after be inspected. And the inspection was, do you remember when the leaders, the religious leaders were questioning 
Jesus, the Herodians, the scribes, the Pharisees, that was the inspection process, if you would. Um, and then also uh, the lamb, verse five says, it was um, uh, a male of the first year. One of the things I learned when I was in 4-H and I had a lamb, I, I had a, um, a heifer before I had a lamb, but I had to downgrade because my heifer was demon possessed. It's a long story. <laughs> but I got this lamb, Pierre. Um, but as it turns out, uh, sheep, we had a bunch of sheep uh, growing up, but um, uh, sheep are, when is a lamb in its prime? It's in its first year. Uh, that's when the lamb is in its prime, uh, prime of life, which is interesting. Uh, when is human prime of life? Generally thought to be your 20s or early 30s. Um, there's kind of an interesting article the BBC came out with, what is the prime of your life? Uh, for fitness activities and stuff that requires, you know, sprinting, bursts of energy, you're, um, you're, you're going downhill by the mid-20s. So if you're in your mid-20s, you're gonna start slowing down. Um, uh, if you're processing information in your brain, past your 20s, your ability to commit new facts to memory has already seen better days. Knowledge rises and falls like waves, but um, reading, comprehension, arithmetic uh, continue in, to improve into your 40s. That's good news. Of course, none of us like math, so we don't do it. <laughs> um, uh, maneuvering and navigating your friendships, uh, your peak of prime is your 50s and your 60s. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, so the conclusion of this study, your physical and mental peak are before your 30s, your mental peak is before your 40s, and your happiest years are at your 60s. That's what they said. Um, but Jesus was taken in his prime at 33, just the prime of life, even as this lamb was selected. So it was in its prime, spotless uh, was the lamb. Um, point number two, the, uh, after the selection of the lamb, then they would possess the lamb. What's the difference? Well, notice that there's a progression here that you need to take note of. In verse three, it says, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. So just pick a lamb for a house. But then it progresses um, you know, from, you know, I'm, I'm talking about how they possess the land. It, it's a progression. Um, it goes from a lamb to verse four. Did you notice it says at the end of verse four, every man according to his eating shall make your account for the lamb. And then in verse five, your lamb shall be without spot and blemish. I think that's exactly what happens with Jesus. Some people say, oh, he's a good teacher, a, a prophet, a good holy man or whatever. Nope. Well, he's, he's the lamb, which is great if you understand that Jesus is the lamb that was slain. But the big question is, is he your lamb? Have you, have you received Christ as yours? And that's the possession. They would, they would have that same progression in this uh, Passover dinner. Uh, Jesus is not just a way to salvation. He is the way to salvation. And hopefully you understand he's your way to being saved. So you have selection of the lamb, possession of the lamb, but then you have destruction of the lamb. Um, whose fault was it that Jesus died on the cross? It's funny how, um, did you know that 22% uh, of the um, uh, population of the United States still, th Christians, of 22% of Christians, still think the Jews are the ones who killed uh, Jesus. It was their fault. Um, that's an improvement. Thir uh, 10 years ago, it was 33%. But um, why do people think that? Well, it's, it's so misguided on so many levels, even historically, it's, it's misguided. But, um, you know, we have to remember um, who killed Jesus was you and me, the Romans, the Jews, all of us, because of our sin. And Jesus went willingly to the cross for all of our sin. Um, that's indicated in this story. Check it out. 
um, it says there in verse six, on the 14th day of the same month, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Isn't it interesting, singular, it, the lamb, even though we know there was hundreds of thousands of these lambs, but the Bible still puts it as singular. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel will kill it. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the one who is the substitution. Jesus is the one in Genesis 22 when Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him and there was a ram caught in the thicket and the Lord said, "My God, God will provide a ram or a lamb sacrifice. Um, so who is guilty? It's all the congregation of Israel. Implication, New Testament, the whole population of the earth. How will the lamb be destroyed? Verse eight, it says, and they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Now we're starting to get into some of the picturing of communion, the eating of bread, um, roasted with fire, the burn marks on the bread that I was talking about. Roasting with fire speaks of judgment and wrath that Jesus took on our behalf. Um, But it was eaten with bread and with bitterness. Why would they eat it with bitterness? Our sin should sicken us. There's an idea of what our sins do. It's not, you don't, you don't have cake at the Passover because um, it's not sweet. It's, it's actually sour and it's bitter. Bitter herbs are what we should eat that with. And then this beautiful picture of the blood on the doorposts, also in the sap. Um, what's the sap? Well, if you look at verse 22 of Exodus 12, um, it says, and you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, Hebrew word, sap and strike the lintel of the two side posts, the blood that's in the basin, and none of you shall go out the door of this house until morning. Um, this completes a kind of a perfect picture. You got the two spots of blood on the side posts, on the header over the door, and then what was the sap? It was the, on the threshold, they would have a bowl. Often it would be built into the floor that they would pour water into um, so that people could step in, wash their feet, and then go into the house. That's what the sap was, uh, this basin but they would put the blood in that basin at the bottom, the two doorposts and the top. And I wonder, is it a coincidence that that shape makes a cross over the doors of those people's houses there in Egypt? Or is that a Godowince? I kind of think it's a Godowince, but um, I wouldn't die on that battlefield. But it is interesting, the top, the sides, the base uh, making a cross. So um, the destruction of the lamb, they would kill it all together. Um, Number four, the salvation by the lamb. And the blood shall be, verse 13, the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Do you think the firstborn were thankful that night when the, the spirit of death passed over them? How do you think the firstborn, do you think they were nervous? Um, and do you think they felt joy? Even though there was weeping in Egypt, the Jews were saying, man, we're, we, we allow, and our animals, our firstborn of our animals and our firstborn of our children, everybody was okay that put blood on the door. Well, that's the same feeling you can have because you're the firstborn of sin, if you would. We are all destined to be sinful, doomed, hellbound people. But because the blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, it makes me so thankful to be a Christian, to know that my sins have been washed away and that the spirit of death passes over So Christ is our Passover. Um, We're not better than the world. Just like the Jews weren't necessarily better than the Egyptians. Did you hear what I just said? What was the difference between um, the Egyptians and the the Jews? Well, the Jews were God's holy people. 
Yeah, but were they really that holy? Um, can I show you a few more passages? I'll, I'll stop here in a minute. I, I won't try to finish this chapter tonight, but look back a page. Um, go to Exodus 11. I'll, I'll show you a few things here that are kind of fun. Uh, Exodus 11, verse seven, um, it says, but against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast that you may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptian and Israel. What is the difference between the Egyptians and the Israel? Well, um, Ezekiel the prophet would long answer this question years later. Um, I'm gonna only have you turn one more passage. Ezekiel, go over to Ezekiel. It's toward the middle of your Bible. It's after Psalms. Big, huge, major prophet, Ezekiel. And go to me with, uh, to Ezekiel chapter 20. And Ezekiel talks about this difference between you know, the world and the Jew and what have you. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse six. It says there in Ezekiel 20, verse six, it says, in the day that I lifted up my hand unto them to bring them forth out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had espied for them flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Then said I unto them, cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes and defile not yourself with idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. They did not every man cast away their abominations before their eyes, neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I wrought for my namesake that it should not be polluted before the heathen among whom they were, in whose sight I made myself known unto them in bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. Now notice in verse 10, 11, and 12, the Lord says, here's what I'm gonna do. Here, what you did is you just were just like the Egyptians. There was no difference between you and the Egyptians. You were pagan, idol-worshiping, Egyptian-following wackos. That's what the Lord says of the Israel, the, the Jews. But, verse 10, wherefore I, that's the whole thing right there, I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, um, which if a man do, he shall live in them. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. So Ezekiel saying, I, the only thing that sanctifies you Jews, Israel, is me. I'm the one who pulled you out. I'm the one who set you apart. I'm the one that gave you the laws, you know, the, the, the Mosaic law. Um, you say, well, Brett, the law causes um, everybody to, to be dead. The Lord gave them the law. But in Galatians, what does the law drive people to? Jesus, he's our schoolmaster that drives us to Jesus. See, if you do the deduction throughout the Bible, what you realize there's no difference between the Jew and the Egyptian, except for God did choose them out from the people. And after choosing them, he provided them his, his way, his plan, which would ultimately push the Jew to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The difference between the Egyptian and the Jew is the blood of Jesus. The difference between the blood of the, the Jew and, and the Gentile in, in Exodus 12 was the blood on the doorpost. And, and you know what's so cool about this? Um, Jesus would continue to teach this perspective that the difference would be the blood. The blood would be the key that separates uh, the Jew from the world. And it's the same thing for you and me. 
Um, back to Mark 14, uh, just one or two more verses. We're, we're almost done. So he says, take eat, this is my body, verse 22. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. The old covenant or the old Testament was the blood of the lamb, which was a picture of his blood of the New Testament, the new covenant. Verse 25, verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink in the new kingdom of God. So here's where communion was instituted. The last supper, bread and the cup, and, and, and then later passages, Jesus talked about, you know, 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, and it's what we get to do. We don't do the Passover dinner, we do the last supper, the communion service in the church age because the bread and the cup. And this is important. And, and, um, and we'll go into this even further next week. But let me, let me just say this. Uh, some of you are like, Brett, see, Jesus drank wine. You know, this was wine here. Um, and people like to say, you know, and you know, there's no, there's no Bible verse that says you can't drink wine. Um, you're not supposed to be drunk with wine, the Bible says. Uh, but I always love it when people say, see, Brett, Jesus drank wine, even made wine at a wedding. Um, and he drank wine. Are you saying bread, it wasn't alcohol? No, I'm admitting that it, was, it had a certain um, inebriation factor to it. Um, yes, alcoholic. Um, uh, so then why are you uh, not one who drinks, drinks alcohol or wine? Because uh, I'm an elder pastor in a church and I think that, that that's a good thing for a pastor and elder not to be given to, especially since we have so many alcoholics that are struggling. Um, but also like when people say, I'm just being like Jesus drinking wine. Well, if you wanna do that, don't forget the last part of the verse we just read uh, says, Jesus said, verily I say to you, I will not drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. So Jesus has been teetotening for, for, uh, since the, the, the Passover dinner on this night um, till the millennial kingdom. So I'm just saying, if you're making that your argument, uh, then you need to start, hang it up. Um, but. No, I'm just kidding. I, but, but at the same time, I do have to say, it's funny how people get all defensive about that one. Why do you just do grape juice at communion? Well, it is the fruit of the vine. It is. It's just not, uh, it doesn't have any alcoholic part to it. And it's largely because uh, we don't want people who struggle with alcohol to actually have to sort of mess around with that and the temptations that are there. We're trying to be loving. So don't, don't get all hung up on that one. That's gonna, be... well, anyway, um, all that to say, uh, great opportunity uh, to uh, do the Passover is really um, communion. By the way, have you ever felt like you wanted to get baptized again? You know, maybe you're an old Christian, you're baptized years ago and you thought, oh, that watching that baptism last Sunday with all those Athey Creekers taking the plunge, ah, I, I wanna get baptized again. Could I just say that communion for you is kind of a mini baptism? It's once again, acknowledging that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And as you confess your sins, he, he remembers and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Communion is such a beautiful expression of what Jesus did. And it's sort of like something he tells us, do this often. He didn't say get baptized often, but he did say do the uh, beautiful ordinance of communion often in remembrance of Christ. And that's why we do it. Uh, sometimes Sunday mornings and Saturday nights. Sometimes uh, we do it, well, we do them every Sunday night at the Sunday night worship. Um, we also have communion available here at the church during the week if you wanna come down. Like there's, there's opportunities and you can also have communion at your house. Oh, Brett, I need a priest with a pointy hat to put a wafer on my tongue. <laughs> no, that's not true. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's 
um, death until he comes. Lord, I pray that you'd give us um, just a new appreciation for this beautiful institution of the Last Supper and the communion table. Um, Lord, I, I pray that uh, the people that are watching and listening that have all the religious liturgies that go around communion that may have had good reasons and purposes throughout history, but Lord, a lot of this has gotten so out of control uh, that we lost the simplicity and the power behind communion. I pray that we wouldn't do that. I pray that we'd do it often in remembrance of you, even as you asked us to do it. Um, keeping it simple, but also life-changing. Uh, so Lord, as we uh, continue just uh, moseying through Mark here, Lord, I pray that you just give us wisdom, application, bless these your people tonight in Jesus' name, amen.